kicking off a new series on identity. This is an interesting area that we're going to uh, just step-by-step walk through over the next few weeks. So keep in mind, as we kick off a series, we're going to kind of set the table today. But each of these uh, messages are layered. They kind of build on each other, right? So we'll leave today still having some questions, so we'll kind of methodically walk through this. But this idea of the reality of our identity is interesting from a cultural perspective. Because the day and age that we live in, there aren't too many moral absolutes left. Identity might be the last one remaining. Here's what I mean. We still live in a day and age where there aren't too many people, if any, that argue with the statement of be yourself. Right? That's what I mean by this might be the last remaining moral absolute. Well, you know, before we just uh, throw out everything regarding uh, truth and, and the world that we live in and whether or not there's any foundation at all, the good news is identity is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a Christ follower. So there, there is good news, there is hope, and so you know, on a larger scale, we're really peeling back the layers of the significant question of who are you? Like, who am I, really? We have to get this right if we're going to live a God-honoring life and fully embrace who God has created us to be. So let me pray for us, and we'll get into it. God, in these moments, as we, uh, all of us coming from different journeys in life, different histories, and different stages of maybe even thinking about this question, trying to answer this question of who am I really? God, I pray that uh, we find clarity. I pray that we find uh, some conviction in who we are beyond just ourselves so that we can fully realize who you've created us to be and we can live out your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember I was in sixth grade a long time ago in class, and in walked one of my closest friends, Greg Staley. Greg Staley was a great friend to have because he had a lot of cool stuff, right? His family, you know, a little bit better off than our family, and so I remember being at his house one time, and that was the first time I saw the mouse, right, with the computer. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I remember playing Nintendo at his house, like, holy cow, this is an unbelievable reality. I can do this. Like, okay, you know, hanging out at Greg's house with my friends, that was a good, good place to be. But I remember one day specifically in sixth grade, he walks in with a brand new pair of shoes. And I was like, man, those are the coolest shoes I have ever seen. They're not the Reebok pumps, right? Some of you may wonder. He, they're the, actually, these are the shoes here. And I look at them now like, man, those are pink. Why did I ever think those were cool? <laughs> They're pink shoes. But hey, I grew up in the 80s, so pink was cool. And he walks in, and the reason why I thought those were really, really cool, and some of you might already know this, they belonged to my favorite tennis player at the time, Andre Agassi. Here's a picture of Andre Agassi. Yeah, we laugh now, but at the time, that's the epitome of cool, right? He's got that uh, long, flowing hair. More pink, more pink, of course, and so you've got to match your shoes. And uh, Andre Agassi was so cool that uh, Canon... Uh, the camera maker asked him to be their spokesperson, right? Because you look like that. You're the epitome of cool. How about you come and be our spokesperson? And our, slag, our slogan is, our tagline is, image is everything. So here's Andre Agassi. So cool, right? That's him. I know, I know. It's, some of you are like, what are you talking about? That's still cool, right? That is still cool. <laughs> the mullet all day long. And so uh, there's Andre Agassi back in the 80s. And uh, fast forward a few years, though, uh, didn't quite stay that way. Here's a... Yeah. Whoopsie, whoopsie Daisy, I don't think, uh, don't think we want you as our spokesperson anymore, so uh, hey, that's what happens, stick around long enough. But their tagline, image is everything, when we first hear that, we're like, no, maybe you saw it in your bulletin, you're like, that's not true, like, okay, I want to, you know, maybe stick around, find out, you know, where, where Darren's going with this, because I don't really think that that's true, 
right? And, and Canon, right? and Andre Agassi, the image is everything, right? You got to look cool, be cool. If you're going to you know, have cool, it's going to look like a Canon camera. Well, the reality is image actually is everything. The question, though, then becomes, whose image exactly? Image actually is everything, but we have to be very clear on whose image we're referring to. See, the reason we live in such an image-conscious culture is because we instinctively attach our significance to our level of accomplishment or acceptance, right? This isn't new news, right? Just, uh, you know, go to the grocery and see the magazine aisle, just turn on TV, right? It's, we're a very image-driven culture, right? Where we're driven to present our best selves to the world in such a way in our current cultural framework where we put ourselves together in such a way where the world will affirm and accept us. That's what it looked like in the 80s, right? Aren't too many people walking around looking like Andre Agassi because the culture, today because cultural framework has evolved, right? And so we dif- see different hairstyles and different fashions, all driven by what is actually acceptable. What, what is it that I can put forth that the world around me will affirm? But we take this even, even deeper. We think about, okay, how can I construct myself, my identity, so that I'm affirmed by the world around me? Well, then it gets reduced to, our identities get reduced to, I am what I do. Us guys are the worst at this. When we first meet another guy, it's not very long, maybe even the very first question, what is it that you do? And we immediately look at that person through the lens of what it is that they do for a living. We believe oftentimes that I am what I prove to the world. Right? So that's why we feel the pressure to present ourselves in such a way where people see us as valuable, as worthy. I am what I have. That's keeping up with the Joneses mentality. We look around, okay, well, they have this house, they have this boat, they live this kind of life. I guess that's the norm, and I guess we're going to have to kind of keep up with the people around us if people are going to look at us as significant. I am what I have. So we kind of live in this look-at-me culture that is desperate for affirmation and really the search for significance. All of these, th- these things are contribute, contributing to the desire. We want to be somebody. It's a natural desire. We work so hard, so tirelessly to present this valid identity to the world, hoping that this fragile identity will be accepting to others. But then if we're criticized... We put, all right, well, here it is. Here's my full self. That's why we have the natural fear of vulnerability because I've put my true self forward and I'm rejected. That's worst case scenario. So if I put my presenting self forward and I'm criticized based on what people see, we end up experiencing shame born solely out of what other people think of us. This is very dangerous territory, right? We just, we, we just we kind of hit the ground running, right? We went deep. We went heavy really quickly. And so many of us have experiences of this. So the difference between guilt and shame, guilt is feeling bad for what I do. Shame is feeling bad for who I am. And so that's why worst case scenario is if I am who I fully am to the world and they reject that, then I experience shame. In preparing for this message, I came across a quote. I was like, wow, that's that's a pretty heavy-duty quote. This guy said this, chronic shame is to internalize a critical gaze. Chronic shame is is to internalize a critical gaze. That's why there are probably several hundred different statements represented across both campuses this morning where you, you remember maybe 50, 60 years later what someone said to you based on how you looked, based on how you acted, and it stuck with you. You internalize that criticism. 
And you've questioned, right, your identity. Is that really who I am? Maybe I don't have value. Maybe I don't have worth because this person said this to me. So we naturally, all of us are prone to proceed to kind of put on these masks and operate out of a false presenting self that we believe, we hope, the world will affirm and approve of. Like, okay, well, it didn't work out to look like that. Maybe we'll evolve into this or I'll act a different way. And and parents, it's a dangerous day and age, isn't it? You see this, your upper elementary, middle school, or even high schooler, right? Just kind of this experimental mindset. And a lot of it's born out of simply, I'm going to be whoever is going to be most accepted you know, in my life. And that's a dangerous thing because I'm going to compromise my true self if it means I'm going to be accepted and affirmed by the people around me. So what is your identity? Your identity is whatever you look to. Whatever you look to as the ultimate source of your security and worth. So right, get that in your mind. Okay, what is it that if I, if I lost this thing, I feel like I would lose part of myself? Your identity is whatever it is that you attach yourself to as the ultimate source of your security and worth. Where does that come from? Author John Tyson has some interesting perspective. He said, an identity is our sense of self within a larger framework that gives us worth and value. And likewise, an identity crisis occurs when we lose that framework and no longer have a sense of self-worth or guiding principles by which to make daily decisions, right? There's this system that we live in. Okay, life seems to be going well. I seem to be accepted and affirmed by my peers. I'm just going to have to keep it up, right? That can be exhausting. But we have to get practical. Who am I without this job? Whatever job you might have. Do I lose part of myself, part of my identity if I lose my job? Who am I without this specific relationship? Is being with this person or being connected to this person contributing greatly to my value? Who am I without this specific circumstance or this specific possession? Now, what's interesting, right, we're kind of setting the table, keep in mind, we're going to you know, kind of lead into what God has in mind for us, but it's interesting to first to look all the way back, and even several, several thousand years ago, how this cultural framework has evolved. What has determined significance, this cultural framework, has, has changed over the years. So you go back several thousand years, in ancient times, before the time of Jesus, what it would look like to have, be, uh, to have a significant life is to live in this honor-based cultural framework. What that means is you live a life of sacrifice. You sacrifice your own needs, wants, and desires for the people around you. People would consider you to be an honorable person. That would be the highest regard for someone. Therefore, you have a significant life. Well, fast forward to the time of philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, and they talked about the importance of being a good moral person abide by just being a good person in this, in this world. So this cultural framework kind of evolved from an honor-based framework to just being a good person and virtuous. And that would be, mean you were significant. And that was a shift toward this external identity. I'm now looking around, starting to pay attention to what people are saying is actually good. Now fast forward a few hundred more years, there was a shift from an external to an internal identity, age of romanticism and enlightenment, where people start to look within, and I'm going to find meaning and value within myself, right? Just a few hundred years ago, started to be introspective and like, okay, who am I really within myself? I need to discover who my true self is and then express that discovered self to the world. Now, fast forward to the 20th century and today, now we don't have too many moral absolutes that everybody collectively typically agrees on. 
to determine what is good and how to live a good life. Instead, each person, this is the reality, scary reality that we all understand already. Each person today simply looks within to find out what they believe to be good, what they believe to be moral, and what is good for one person might not be good for another. Well, I mean, this is, this is where we are today. Oh, that's nice that that's true for you. Here's what's true for me. So go ahead and find your own version of truth that works for you and discover significance out of that. Very dangerous times. Again, that's why maybe the last moral absolute is identity itself. So all of that evolution is, is, is well and good, except for one simple fact, one profound, absolutely essential fact, that every single one of us has been created. We've all been created. You and me, we were someone's idea. <laughs> this is good news. There's a creator and even an author to your life. So if you don't know where you came, came from, if you don't know where you came from, you're going to have a very difficult time figuring out who you are. It's going to be a lost cause. Right? You're going to go this way and you're going to go that way and you're going to have an up and down, constantly, constantly drifting life based on the kind of truth for the day to attach your significance to. So we have to know where we came from. So here we go, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God said, let us, when he says let us, referring to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You've been made. That's an unbelievable reality. The primary truth regarding your identity is you were made in the image of God. Now, we, we intuitively understand the value of this. You ever go to a party and you go up to the dessert table and you see store-bought desserts and you see homemade desserts? I'm, I'm, to this day, I've never heard like, oh, man, these homemade desserts, are you serious? Like, why can't people do more store-bought stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, we're going after the home. Like we intuitively understand the value of this. Or when, when somebody makes you something, right, it's homemade, it's handmade. Uh, we just had uh, recently some people uh, make 40 quilts for our homeless ministry, right? That's time spent. That's a labor of love. We understand the value of something being made. Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 and 14, you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together. You ever see somebody knit something? Yeah, no thanks. I'm never going to be a knitter. That's serious time. You knit something, you make a quilt, like that's a labor of love. This is your story. You've been made on purpose. So the reality is you don't find your identity, you receive your identity. Because you've been made, you're not the author of your existence or your story. Because you've been made, you don't just discover or find your identity. Oh, I finally found myself. No, you find your maker, you meet him, and then you understand that your identity has been fully received. All of my value is in the one that I've come from. This is a no compromise understanding. We live a very stressful existence, don't we? trying to figure it out who it is that we should be based on the cultural framework around us. It's shifting sand. It's a lost cause. So any identity that has to be achieved rather than received is both temporary and fragile. I thought of a number of examples in my life where I tried to find my identity through what I do or maybe what I have. 
and it popped in my mind, something I hadn't thought about in a long time, it took me back to my freshman year of college went to Cincinnati Christian University and played basketball there, and it was kind of a perfect storm circumstance where the coach decided to kind of restart, and so there weren't any seniors on the team, so we were pretty heavy with freshmen and sophomore. So here I am, 18 years old, as a freshman at college, uh, starting on the college basketball team, and so I had a pretty good year. Oh, oh, oh man, a freshman, best player on the team. Like, I feel pretty good about myself, and I vividly remember that the summer following, this had been the summer of 1998, I went to work in an inner city church in Atlanta, Georgia. I wanted to keep playing basketball, so I got a gym membership for about two and a half months in inner city Atlanta. And I show up at this gym, and oh, wow, okay. I'm no longer a good basketball player. Like, <laughs> I had this nice little bubble, which, by the way, there's no scholarships offered there at the time, so anybody makes a team. I can be a 5'11 shooting guard and feel pretty good about myself. Go to Atlanta for two months, play in this gym, and I gotta, if I want to get a shot off, i got to stand three feet behind the three-point line because anywhere closer, I'm getting my shot blocked. That's the reality here. So it's like, okay, glad this is over. I'm going to go back where they think I'm actually good at basketball. <laughs> this was a wake-up call, right? Okay, here I am, freshman, big head, go back to sophomore, right? Okay, okay. deflated, right? But I was realizing I was on a dangerous, dangerous path finding my identity through success, right? And people affirming that, wow, you're really good at what you do. That's a very dangerous thing to attach your identity, your significance to. So if you choose to build your identity on your ego, buckle up because of that when that kingdom comes crashing down, and it will, you are left with not even really knowing who you are. And it could be decades, maybe your career or a specific relationship, and you're totally lost because all of your identity has been attached to that. And oftentimes that is the common cause of the midlife crisis, realizing that there has to be more to life. Why am I so far into my career, so far into even a, a relationship, and I still don't fully understand who I am? Shifting sand. So as soon as you make your identity what you do, it could be career, it could be hobby, or what you have, or who you are with, a specific relationship, you've chosen to construct an identity on really shifting sand. And if any of these things become your everything, your identity will inevitably be crushed. Many of you probably have that story. So the stakes of this reality, really, and many of you know this better than I do, the stakes of this reality, the search for our identity and our significance, immediately go up when you become a parent. Because of this little thing called influence. <laughs> right, and again, many of you know my story. I didn't get married until I was 35. Barely snuck in a kid there before turning 40. So I had Levi when I was 39 years old. And that's like the ultimate wake-up call in, in a variety of ways. One of which is, okay, wow, I better be a good example in life. Like, you know, that, that was a priority in my life, you know, before. But especially when you have a kid, you realize the power of influence. So think about this, and many of you parents get this better than I do. If I believe that I am the author of my own significance, and I live as if I've constructed, constructed the entirety of my identity and image, I have immediately set up my child to fail. I, I think about people that don't have faith in God, don't have a relationship with Christ. Like, the pressure is overwhelming. I don't even want to begin to imagine being what I would consider to be a good parent if I didn't have my anchor in Christ. Because I'm setting my child up to fail immediately because I'm it. I'm it. I'm the primary influencer. And their primary example, right, me, I, my, if Levi's following suit and just looking at me and me alone, 
And he's going to be living out of this disillusioned, fragile, and even insecure existence if he just follows in my footsteps. So let's think about this, and I've obviously thought about this a lot. Levi's almost 17 months old. It's one thing as a parent for your kid to be born and start to grow up, and they look like you. Here's a picture of Levi and me side by side. So that's Levi on the right. That's me on the left, right, the blurry one, because I'm old, and uh, that's an old picture. And you're like, it's one thing for your kid to look like you. It's, a, it's, a, it's also one thing for your kid to like what you like. You're like, that's cool. He likes what I like. Krispy Kreme donuts. Hello. That's the <laughs> pinnacle of happiness. So it's one thing for him to look like me, to like what I like, but it is a whole other thing to see him do what I do, especially at a young age. This was a couple months ago. That's crazy. I mean, he's probably less than 15 months old at that time and just hops up on the couch. He doesn't know how to read, right? Some of you are like, oh, wow, you're, you're 15 months old. He's, yes, he's reading. No, he can't read. That's what makes it even scarier reality. He's pretending to read because daddy is reading. This is a very scary reality. Again, in so much pressure, if I do not properly understand the proper anchor for my identity, let me explain it this way. Levi might be the spitting image of me, but what is essential for Levi to understand about his significance and his identity is that he has been made in the image of someone so much greater than his dad. This is essential for him to understand. So how will he know? How will he know? Well, it's by how well his mom and his dad reflect their maker. This is how he'll know. Genesis chapter 1, 27, the message translation, God created human beings, he created them God-like, right? This isn't, a, uh, if you're, you know, this isn't like the narcissistic uh, you know, verse of the year kind of thing, but he created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. Right, so you've been made and you've been created to be God-like, how? In the sense that you would reflect God's nature. Do we do what God does? Are we living in such a way we're reflecting him to the world around us? Our calling in life is to be image bearers, to be image bearers. So what makes our maker proud is proudly reflecting his image, not ours. Is my life marked by the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of God, right? The Holy Spirit is fully God. Is my life marked by the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? These are reflections of a new nature. We have put on Christ. And so our kids hopefully understand, right, we don't need them, they don't need us to tell them how imperfect and broken we are and that we will let them down. No, we, we do that regularly and they see that, but they need to know that we're not the main point. We're trying our best and hopefully these fruits of the Spirit are reflecting the main point who is God himself. This is the evidence, these fruits are the evidence of the Spirit of God living within we cannot manufacture or achieve these traits. A new nature must be received. A transformation has to take place. And if these characteristics are a regular part of your life, you can be doing just about anything in life and be living out of the fullness of your identity. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter what your career, your hobby is, or your relationships. <laughs> if you have these fruits of the Spirit being reflected, then that over, out of the overflow of what it is that you, are, you do and who you are with, these characteristics are what are most prominent. So your significance will never be found again in your job, your hobbies, your possessions, or your relationships. Our current cultural framework will consistently rail against this. We were kind of flipping the script upside down. 
right? In a world that says just become the best version of yourself, <laughs> as if you are the main point. You need to discover within, you need to read all the books in the self-help section and become the best version of you, and then that's success. No, that's shifting sand. There's no anchor in that. And so we'll continue to construct kind of this identity formation, be about this process born out of what you do being more important than who you are. It's not true. When it comes to your identity, never forget the fact that you were made. You were made. And if I'm walking around made, if you're walking around made, shouldn't we be looking a lot like our maker? We fail to live a significant life if we don't properly reflect our maker. Now, let me just take this one, as we turn the corner and kind of close out today's message, let me take this one step further when we think about the world that we live in today and the significance of understanding being made in the image of God. We can't just keep this an internal conversation. How well you understand the significance of being made in the image of God is reflected in what is most important to God, specifically the way that we treat others. Here's what I mean. We have a very, unfortunately, significant still issue of racism in our world today. Racial profiling, specifically. That's not like this isolated, over there, big issue. No, that's an image of God issue. We have an improper understanding of the value of every single person. Right? And for most of us at both campuses, being white, especially white males, if we don't properly understand white privilege and the reality that that is, then there's a disconnect between a proper understanding of the image of God, every single person being made in the image of God. So racism is an image of God issue. Abortion is an image of God issue. The devaluing of someone who has been made in the image of God. Other image of God issues, pornography, strip clubs, and prostitution. In all of these instances is the devaluing of one who was created in the image of God. Right? Those are some sensitive but highly significant areas in life where we have to understand that that's not a separate issue. We don't properly understand the significance of every single person being made in the image of God if we take part in any of those areas. Matt Chandler said this, that we're the imago day, which means the image of God, where the imago day is not understood, it is the weak and the vulnerable who are abused and consumed. There's consequences way beyond, way beyond just understanding who you are. This affects other people. So are the desires of my heart in line with the desires of my maker? This is the essence of living out a relationship with Christ, walking with him daily so he continues to transform us. See, because we were created, that means we are not the creator. Hopefully that's common sense. But because we were created, we didn't become who we want to become on our own. That means we are not the creator, therefore we are not the point. See, the image of God, or we think the it's not the image of Darren, it's not the image of myself, it's the image of God that has to be the lens in which we all look at all of life and the fullness of our purpose, to live life reflecting the actual point of life. Author Donald Miller in one of his books describes a conversation he had with one of his friends. In one of his friends, uh, he, he describes it this way. Donald Miller said, my friend said to me, I was a tree in a story about a forest, and that it was arrogant of me to believe any differently. And he told me the story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. We are missing the point if we're trying to live our best life now and get the end of our life and say, I think I lived a great story. Based on what the world spoke into my life, how I was described most of my life, I guess I lived a significant life. 
We're not the main point. Our, we exist for the primary purpose of reflecting the fact that we've been made, which means we're reflecting our maker. And so we live as lights in a dark world, pointing people beyond ourselves to the one who is the author of every single person's life, the creator. The fullness of your identity and what makes you significant is that you are made. You are made in the image of a holy and loving God. <laughs> Don't ever question your value. God doesn't because he made you. So who are you? You're made by God. John chapter 1, I'll close with this, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. To all who did receive, I received this identity. I know who I am because I'm with Christ. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Know your roots. Know where you come from. If you know God and you experience a relationship with Christ, you can embrace every single day the peace that passes understanding and know that you don't have to prove yourself to the world. You can just wake up knowing I'm a child of God, therefore I have value, I have worth. It's for everyone. What a beautiful truth that we need to embrace. Let's pray. God, as we consider uh, the reality of your love for us, you made us, you knit us together, you thought of how we could be uniquely created to not just exist, but to reflect you. God, we want to show up to you, understanding our proper value, and to choose you every single day, recognize you as Savior and Lord, and find sheer joy in that. In Jesus' name we pray.